0: A reading from the book of 2nd Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Acacia, grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God of all comfort praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any troubles. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted It is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also will you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we have experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. The word of the Lord.
1: Where do you turn for comfort when you encounter seasons of your life that are painful, disappointing, conflict, loss? Some of us turn to food, comfort food, fried chicken, mashed potatoes. Green beans, they're just a garnish. (laughs) Cherry pie, ice cream. You know there's science behind this, right? They have found that fatty, sugary foods can actually slow down certain stress-producing hormones in the body. So you actually will feel a sense of calm after eating chicken Fried chicken. You don't know how many times, by the way, I've cursed Chick-fil-A on Sundays. (laughs) There's also psychology wrapped up in this. They've done studies with men. Men prefer meals like meatloaf, pasta, and stew because that's what their mom would feed them. And they'd have the security of their childhood. Women, on the other hand, prefer foods, mostly snack food, that is much less labor-intensive. So they prefer things like chips. What? Popcorn. Oh, come on. Chocolate? Brownies? Ice cream? By the way, in all my research, ice cream makes every list of comfort food. For when pain... And disappointment come. Some of us turn inward. We push people away. We become introspective. Uh, uh, we w- go on long walks. We, we, we um, write in our journals. We, we listen to music. For others of us, when pain comes into our life, we need to turn outward. We need family and friends around us. We, we work more. We, we volunteer more often. For some of us, when pain enters our lives, we're very aware that the main thing that will help is time. Time heals all wounds, and so we keep forcing ourselves through the routines, and slowly comfort can begin to drip into our lives a little bit. Here's the thing. When life hurts, we need comfort. All those things are a measure of comfort, but when something really bad happens, where do you turn for comfort? We began a new preaching series from a great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a Greek church in the first century. And he begins writing this letter with comfort. You may have noticed when uh, Charlotte read the text how often the word comfort appeared. Ten times in 11 verses. Paul begins with comfort. Why? Because Paul was in a very difficult place in his life. We get glimpses of it. In verses 8 and 9, when Charlotte read, you may have noticed, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. This would be modern-day Turkey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Now, scholars write papers on this and why Paul has suffered. There's three main theories. One is that he's suffering a physical illness or injury. Others think that it's persecution that he endured in some of the Turkish cities. He uh, says later in 2 Corinthians that he experienced flogging, beating, stoning, shipwrecked, and on two occasions left for dead. Ouch. Wow. Suffering persecution. The third theory is that it's some kind of spiritual distress, discouragement, perhaps even depression. Whatever it is Paul has experienced, did you notice his language? We despaired of life itself. It may have been better, he's reflecting, to have been dead. It was that hard. The other piece of Paul's pain and why he starts the letter with comfort is because he's having conflict with this church in Corinth, a church he helped start. We get a glimpse of that in verses 15 and 16, and uh, you'll talk more about this in your small groups this week, but Paul writes, I was confident of this. I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. So What Paul is referring to is at the end of 1 Corinthians, he had told the church at Corinth that he was going to go to Macedonia. He'd stop and see them on the way, but then he was going to come back from Macedonia and stop and see them a second time. Well, Paul changed his plans. Later in 2 Corinthians, he says, look, the reason I changed my plans is because the first visit I had with you on the way to Macedonia was so painful... I didn't want to inflict that on you again. But the Corinth interpretation of that was, Paul, you are a fickle friend. A fair-weather friend. Your yes doesn't mean yes. And they doubt his integrity. Now, understand how much this would have hurt Paul. Paul spent 18 months of his life planning this church. And over a five-year period, he visited Corinth three times, and he wrote four letters to them, two of which we still have. He spent more time with Corinth than any other church that he planted. And yet, they did not respect him or want to follow his leadership. Ouch. Speaking as a pastor of a church, I'm glad that's not me. That would be terrible to have that kind of conflict with the church. So Paul writes from pain, and he's looking for comfort. In fact, I think his his pastoral counsel here is brilliant, starting with comfort, because what he's saying is, listen, when we're in conflict, when we're in affliction, we better know where our comfort lies. So, what Paul sets to do is tell us first what comfort is. We'll talk about the, his word choice for the, the word comfort. And then he talks about who gives comfort. Where do you find it? Who gives it? And then lastly, and this is a surprise, he's going to tell us why he gives us comfort, and it's not what we expect. So where, what comfort is, who gives it, and why he gives it. Let's talk about the word. First, I'd like to talk about what it's not. Uh, here's my submission to you. You tell me later if you agree or disagree, I would argue that one of the words that's gone soft in our culture is the word comfort. I mean, what do you think of when you think of comfort? Massage, comfortable shoes, down jacket, ice cream. You think of tissues with lotion in them so your nose doesn't get red. I mean, comfort in our culture is all about Easing pain, relieving distress, feeling better. That's comfort in our culture. In fact, people are starting to complain about it. The whole state of Wyoming is complaining about our view of culture. Recently, there was a comment cards published that had been received from the Bridger Wilderness Area in Wyoming. Bridger Wilderness Area in Wyoming. Here are what some of the comments were. We hope they were tongue-in-cheek. Trails need to be wider so people can walk holding hands. Too many bugs and leeches and spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the area of these pests. Please pave the trails so they can be plowed of snow during the winter. A small deer came into my camp and stole my jar of pickles. Can I get reimbursed? (laughs) Reflectors need to be placed on trees every 50 feet so people can hike at night with flashlights. Some of the Wyoming people in the room are shaking their heads. This one made me really think. The places where trails do not exist are not well marked. And lastly, escalators would help on the steep uphill sections. (laughs) Comfort is all about ease. Paul says, no. No. Look at the word I'm choosing to convey comfort. It's a compound word, and the root of the word means to help by giving courage. To help. By building up, by strengthening. So understand what Paul's view of comfort is. It goes beyond soothing to strengthening, it goes beyond feeling better to getting stronger. To help means to build up so that you can get through the wilderness. And the circumstances. And frankly, isn't that what we need? You and I both know that when we have the next worst day of our life, it's usually a day that changes our life. It's usually permanent in some sense. That kind of loss. And you know, massages and stew will give a measure of comfort, but not enough. You and I both know that when we have those kinds of days, what we need is strength to get through those days. The prefix of the word, so the word means to help by building up. The prefix of the word para means alongside or with. In other words, you don't usually find comfort. Comfort usually finds you. It comes alongside. It's usually in the form of another person who comes alongside and with their words and with their love and with their support, they build you up and walk with you through the circumstances. So, comfort is much more than feeling better. It's getting stronger because another person comes alongside. I mean, Paul uses the word and he experienced it himself. Look a little later in the book when we get to chapter 7. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by what? The coming of Titus, one of Paul's friends. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. God's comfort often comes to us in the form of another person who comes alongside to help. By the way, that's why we're asking every Waterstone attendee, anyone connected to the family here, to get into a small group. We really should call these groups comfort groups because what they're all about is being part of a community where people can come alongside you and help build you up. We ask you to get in a group, not that you'll get soothing out of it, but that you'll bring strengthening to it. You'll hopefully get some good soothing and and benefit from the group, but the main reason we want every believer at Waterstone in a small group is because every believer is a comforter. You've been given comfort to dispense. You have comfort to give. You are a comforter. That's why you need to be in a group, to release that comfort you've been given. I remind you that Christianity, yes, it's a personal relationship with God. Yes, it's very intimate. But no, it is never private. Never. As soon as you became a believer, you took on brothers and sisters. And you are called to be comforters to them. Come alongside and build them up. That's how it works. That's the divine plan of comfort. And you are an ingredient in that. So we come alongside. So that Waterstone will be able to tell stories like this. This is from a journalist living in Chicago by the name of Bob Green in in this book. When my wife died, I was so numb that I felt dead myself. In the hours after her death... Our children and I tried in vain to figure out what to do next, how to get from hour to hour. The next morning, one of those mornings when you awaken, blink to start the day, and then realize anew what has just happened and feel the boulder press you against the earth with such weight that you fear you will never get up, the phone rang. It was Jack. I didn't want to hear any voice. Not even a friend's voice, not even Jack's voice. I just wanted to cover myself with darkness. I knew he would be asking if there was anything he could do, but I should have known that Jack already had done it. I'm in Chicago, he said. I took the first flight this morning. I know you probably don't want to see anyone. That's all right. I've checked into a hotel and I'll just sit in the room in case you need me to do anything. I can do anything you want or I can do nothing. And he meant it. He knew the best thing he could do was to be present in the same town, to tell me he was there. And he did just that. I assume he watched television or did some work, but he waited until I gathered the strength to say I needed him. He helped me with things no man ever wants to help with. But mostly, he sat with me. And he knew I did not require conversation. And did not welcome chatter, did not need anything beyond the knowledge he was there. He brought food for my children, and by sharing my silence, he got me through those days. What's comfort? Comfort is God sending someone to come alongside who will be with you and build you up with strength. For those difficult days. Comfort. Where do we find it? Who gives that kind of comfort? Because let's be honest. All of us want a friend like Jack. But even Jack needs to go home. Even Jack doesn't have the strength to help beyond the next year and the year after that. Where can we find a friend who will never leave us or run out of strength? Paul points us. He says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Paul makes the point that even when we're an adult, we never outgrow needing the love of a parent. And notice that twice he says, Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of compassion. Let's examine each of those. Uh, Paul points us to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? For two reasons. One, in saying that the Father has a Son, Jesus Christ, we remember that in Jesus Christ we find out who God is. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. The great New Testament theologian of our day, N.T. Wright, was once asked, on your deathbed, what do you expect to say to your children? N.T. Wright said, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. What he meant was this, that Jesus is the one who'll keep your life interesting. You can't predict him. You can't contain him. You can't put him in your pocket. He'll keep you guessing. You'll live a very interesting life if you live with Jesus. But then N.T. Wright went on to say, the other thing about Jesus is, He shows us who God is, and He shows us what love is, and He shows us what it means to be human. Why did the Father give us His Son? Why does the Father say, look at Jesus? Because in Jesus, we know who God is, we know who we are, we know what love is. If you're here seeking this morning, if you've come to Waterstone asking, what is this Christian thing and what's this church all about? You know what I want to say to you? Look at Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Don't take our word for it. Look at Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go to the original sources and look at Jesus, and there you'll find out who God is and what love is and who we are. Look at Jesus. That's why he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a reverse of that that we often miss, and the reverse is that be. Father sent his son Jesus to also discover who we are. There's this amazing verse in Hebrews uh, chapter 5, I think it's verse 8, that says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Think about that for a minute. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. In other words, one of the reasons the Father sent his son to live among us is so that the Father could understand and learn more what it's like to be human. Now, Jesus didn't have a sin nature and never committed a sin. He didn't learn anything about what it is to be a sinner. But every other human condition, Jesus experienced. And the reason He experienced it was so that the Father could learn what it's like to be human. Which makes Him, the Father, Of compassion. When you were a kid and you got in trouble, did you tell your mom first or your dad first? How many moms first? How many dads first? Yeah, it's usually always the moms. Moms are more compassionate. My sister and I, it was true for us. If we got in trouble, we'd tell our mom. But we learned something interesting early on as kids. We lived in a house with two staircases. And my mom would come after us with a wooden spoon, we learned that if you could get up the first staircase, run across the upstairs, and down the second staircase, and she hadn't caught us yet, she'd usually be laughing so hard that she couldn't paddle us after. <laughs> I'm still pretty fast runner to this day, but um, <laughs> it's moms that are usually, I mean, even Paul, later in another letter in Ephesians 6, he gives this counsel to parents, and what he says to the father is interesting. He says, remember, fathers, don't provoke your kids to anger. Fathers. Why does he pick on the fathers? Well, because we tend to provoke our kids to anger. How? Unrealistic expectations, unreasonable emotions. In fact, usually father emotions are all the other bad stuff in our life. We often unwantingly are angry and we take that out on our kids. Fathers don't promote your children to wrath, but Paul is saying, when it comes to our heavenly Father, no worries. We have a Father who is compassionate, full of mercy. I remember reading an article years ago by a man named Robert Lewis, and he was talking about the role of fathering. And he he mentioned that sometimes we think the role of fathering is to protect our family, protect our kids, to run blocking and, you know, eliminate any coming pain and obstacles. And there are times we need to do that. But Lewis made the point, that's one responsibility. The larger responsibility of a father is to build strength within the child so that the child can walk through the coming hard days and have the strength to endure So fathers, build your kids up from the inside through your words, through your love, through your time, through your training. Build the kids up on the inside. That's what fathering is, and that's what the Heavenly Father does. He gives us comfort, help, and courage by coming alongside to help children, His children, Finish in nineteen ninety-two, Barcelona Olympics, four hundred meter race. The man who was predicted to win gold was a man named Derek Redman. He was from Great Britain. They started the race. This was a semifinal heat. He was in the mix until he painfully pulled a hamstring on the back turn. He kneels down, just waits gathers himself, because you see, in Great Britain, their tradition is you always finish the race. So Derek Redmond gets up, and he starts to hop. The other runners finish. He's going to finish, and he hops. Suddenly, a man breaks through the security, breaks through the track officials. His name was Jim, Jim Redmond, And Jim Redmond's, Derek's dad, comes and gathers his son in his arms. And what you don't hear or see on the video is that the father says to his son, come on, son, we're going to finish this together. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Come on, son. We're going to finish this together. Comfort is help from someone who comes alongside the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of compassion comes alongside. Send someone to help us walk all the way to the finish. But here's the surprise. Here's what we don't see coming. The reason God gives us comfort is to give it away. He gives enough comfort. In fact, more than enough, enough to give away. Look at verse 4 in our text. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Paul says, all those things that I've suffered, all that pain, God gave me comfort. He strengthened me through that circumstances. But now I begin to realize that was not just an individual deposit. No, there's interest being paid on that deposit. And I need to share that comfort with other people. You know, we see that at work. In our culture, every day, it's interesting how many nonprofits have been started out of pain. From Mothers Against Drunk Driving to Alex's Lemonade Stand, a little girl who, in her cancer, wanted to help other cancer victims. We see that's the image of God in us, that we want to help other people who are suffering, especially when we've suffered and want to share that comfort. But it's also the Christian view of suffering. The unique Christian view among all world religions is this. In this time, oh, there's a day coming when all things be made new and restored, and there will be no more tears or pain or death. But now, the Christian view is this. God does does not promise to cure our suffering. He promises to use our suffering, to redeem it, to give the comfort we receive to others. Amy Carmichael was an Irish woman who felt called to be a missionary in India. She described God's comfort plan this way. I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us a pulse beat nearer some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times, yes. And surely it must be so, for the further we are drawn into the fellowship of the cross with our dear Lord the more tender we are toward others. God never wastes his children's pain. We see that in the 1800s. We see that every day at Waterstone in these seats. You all have struggled, suffered, you've been comforted, and God is using that to strengthen others in your life through your suffering. One story we'd like you to hear this morning is by our director of women's ministry, Joni Leahy. Here is a story of affliction becoming comfort. Take a look.
2: For I rejoice in your love, O Lord. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. And yet you did not hand me over to the enemy, but you set my feet in a spacious place. That verse in the psalm saved my life in 1996. I was in a pit so deep, I thought I would never find my way out, and there was no way that the Lord would want to use me or love me, and that He should hand me over to the enemy because I had made every wrong choice and decision. One of those choices landed me in an abortion clinic. I was 19. It was the week of my 20th birthday in 1979. I decided that um, I was going to be a grown up and make grown up decisions and do grown up things, and that this decision. I could hide. It could be a secret. It would be my secret. No one would have to know because, you see, I was a Christian girl who was not married, pregnant, and the fear of facing our families and all the disappointment and all of the shame and guilt that would come from them was overwhelming. The other piece of that is I didn't have the ability to say no Because of what had happened in my childhood, the trauma I experienced, my no had been taken away, and I had no voice. So even though on the inside I was screaming, no, I don't want to do this, no, I want to make a different decision, I did not have the physical ability. And so I went through with my decision to have an abortion. It was the worst decision. If I could go back and change one thing, it would be that one. A secret, you know, you can keep, and no one has to know. And it's the lie we tell ourselves. And I spent the next 25 years not talking about my secret. I swore that once it was over, it was over and done. But I would sit in church, and I would cry, and I would cry out to God, and I would ask Him to forgive me, probably a thousand or a million times. When I came to the place where I was ready to find healing, and ready to be done with all of the shame and the guilt that I felt. God brought me to a Bible study called Surrendering the Secret. And when I read the brochure, I knew that this was where he wanted to take me, what he wanted me to walk through so I could find healing um, for my abortion and the shame and the guilt that I carried. What was interesting to me at the time is that I had never heard anyone else say anywhere that they'd experienced an abortion. So I thought I was the only one. Interestingly enough, there were two other women uh, that had come forward, and they were looking for hope and healing. And so we walked through the surrounding the Secret Bible study together. It's an eight-week study, and it was an amazing experience. It was hard. There was a lot of tears. Um, there were a lot of um, anger. Um, there was a lot of Bible study, a lot of being in God's Word. Um, but what I love about God's Word is that it says, Jesus came to set the prisoner free and to bind up the brokenhearted. And that's exactly what happens in this Bible study. And I know that sounds really hard to believe, but it's true. Our pastor likes to say that Jesus is wide mercy and deep grace. And it is so true. I'm here to tell you personally from my own experience that I have experienced His grace. And it's something I want you to experience too. So if abortion is a part of your story, there's this amazing ministry surrounding the secret that we would love to have you come and be part of and find healing and hope and freedom.
1: So we're launching small groups this fall. And one of those groups is Surrendering the Secret. And if you'd like to talk to Joni, she's going to be out on the concourse and uh, ask her questions, find more out, uh, more out ab- about this group. And can I say something pastorally to encourage the church? If you see someone talking to Joni, don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions. We've all met Jesus because of his wide mercy and deep grace. God gives comfort, help by coming alongside, and it comes from the Father of compassion, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants to give that to us, not just to get us through, but to have us give it away. So as we come now to the table of comfort, I'm going to ask our communion servers to get ready to come into position, and uh, I want to say something to you as you think about communion now. You came in this morning, I'm sure many of you carrying heavy loads of grief, and what I know about this is that the Father wants to come alongside you now, help you walk, hold you up, get you to the finish. The Father That's why he sent his son. That's why his son walked to the cross, so that you could become a child of God. As many as received Jesus, to them, John says, he gave the privilege and power to become the children of God. Let me ask you, are you a child of God? Here's how you know. First, you have a sense for how much the Father loves you. One of the Old Testament prophets said that when the Father thinks of you, He sings over you. Do you get the sense that God just wants a lullaby over you, loves to be with you, loves that you love Him? The Father loves you like you fathers love your own kids. He loves you more. That's what it means to be a child of God. And it means to be a child of God, to have access. I'm telling you, in the king's palace, there's only one person who can wake the king up at three in the morning and ask for a glass of water, and that's the child of the king. For the queen, it's even risky business. You have access to the Father who made you and saved you. And you have future hope. I mean, what it means to be a child Of the father is that what he's promised Jesus he's promised you you have resurrection you have glory you have healing you have a new heaven and a new earth you are proud possessors of everything that can't be bought you have hope stock market plummets a thousand points this next week oh well I reckon that the present sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that we have as the children of God. We have a God of resurrection. What it means to be a child of God is that you have love, you have access, and you have hope. So I'd like to invite the hosts forward to serve. You come today to receive communion for one of two reasons. Either you have already know God and you're his child and you are celebrating that. You can sing as we take it. You can dance. You can express your joy at being a child of God. Or maybe some of you... You're not sure when you came in this room where you stood with God, but you've heard the Father of Compassion invite you to the table of comfort. And even if this is your first time, come. God wants to make you his child. Come and say to Jesus, I'm yours. Say to the Father, I'm your child. Come to the table of comfort. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and enjoy
2: being at the Father's table.